ooh, like this had an NC-17 rating, like maybe things are gonna be kind of hot. <laughs> and like, and I, like 30 minutes in, I was like, okay, I am back in like the Lower East Side and I am going to Ontological Hysterical or the Worcester Group. Like I am back in performance art world. And, and that's a part of my world that I love. And, but it wasn't, um, my expectations were very different. I'm very happy that I saw it. Um, and I'm not going to be able to forget it. Hey listeners, Chris here. We don't usually do this direct address stuff here at the beginning of the show, but we have two things that we wanted to say. First of all, we'd love to give out a big thanks and a shout out to Leah Jones over at the Finding Favorites podcast. Leah has had both me and Jesse on her show, and it's been a big privilege for both of us. For those of you that haven't experienced Finding Favorites, it's a great show during which Leah has an old school conversation with someone about their favorite thing. Just cruising through the feed of her show is intriguing. You could learn about writing, cycling, powerlifting, Shabbat stews, and making movies just in the last five episodes. Leah is an excellent interviewer, which is an incredibly difficult skill. A good interviewer manages to get a guest to open up and then lets that guest be the star of the show. You'll come away from Leah's shows with a new knowledge about something you didn't even know you found interesting. She plays our season two trailer in her own Thanksgiving interlude episode, which came out a few days ago. Just in 13 minutes, you'll hear about the new Chicago cast of Hamilton, what's going on with the How Did This Get Made podcast, and her reactions to the unfolding horror in the Middle East. Our second update is a warning. The film we are discussing today is graphic and covers many topics listeners might find unsettling. So here is a content warning for Peter Greenaway's The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover. We cover topics such as murder, torture, sexual assault, prostitution, misogyny, albinism, and cannibalism. If any of those topics are upsetting, or if you have younger ears you'd like to protect, we wanted you to know that they are coming. Other than that, we hope that you enjoy this show. Thanks for listening. Oh, it's funny. I hear your, I hear your voice in my ear right now because I'm previewing the audio meme that I made. Ah. There's, there's two Chris bags. One Chris bag, too many. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a lot of Chris bags. That's uh, that's that's quite a bit. Um, I can't believe your baggage of bags. <laughs> a, a a a sack of a bags. Double, a double of bags. An extra of bags. Uh, yeah, yeah we, these can these can keep going. I li- I like a sack of bags. I, are you one of those people who has a bag of bags in your kitchen? Yes. I do. Yes, so it would be bags, bag of bags. Yeah, yes, it would be bags, bag of bags. Bag of dooch. <laughs> yeah, bag of dooch. <laughs> um, I can't believe you're feeling a little low energy on our way into discussing <laughs> this movie, yeah. this film, yeah. this... I don't know what this is, but uh, I'm getting ahead indeed, of ourselves Indeed, let, you know what? Let me finish. I, I was just about to upload this meme to Facebook. So let me finish my now. Now, then you're gonna be like, "Wait, I have one thing I need to do," and I'll be ready. And you'll be like, "Wait, I let me just finish." Here, I'll do it. Chris Bag and I discuss how two great authors may make different 
choices. I think that's good enough. Mm. The meme is the part where we riff on uh, how Andy Weir would have saved the cat. Oh my god! And uh, I love that part. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was a very good episode. Holy it's shit! Very good. That was one of our it's best. Very, yeah, it's very good. Even the ramble at the beginning, I think, had a fluidity to mm. it—a kind of improv fluidity that was great. Um, well, yeah. I mean, maybe we should just get into it if we don't have if if we don't have an opening bit. One one thing I will say is that for about the last five years, I have conflated Michael Gambon and Max von Max von Sydow in my brain. Hmm, I don't. I was like, oh yeah, I, I don't know who that is. Max von Max von Sydow um, is a Swedish actor, and maybe the reason I conflate them is Michael Gambon sounds like a French name. Um, Max von Sydow was the father in um, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. He was the Uh, villain in Minority Report. Okay. He's excellent. And when Michael Gambon died earlier this year, they were like, oh, Dumbledore died. And I'm like, Dumbledore? That's all you can associate this guy with? What about The Diving Bell and the Butterfly? What about... (laughs) I mean, I still feel that way. Although, you know, it's... It's a little bit less so now, Um, you know, even though this is an obviously an iconic role uh, for him. It's not necessarily as famous a film as, say, oh, four Harry Potter movies. Uh, And, you know, I mean, just a just a cavalcade of other stuff. Uh, I saw him in a stage play in uh, Ah. I saw him in art, um, the Yasmina Hmm. Reza uh, um, hit. in uh, the early 90s, one of the, another one of the like weird things that my mom took me to see, uh, which is kind of amazing. I feel like she sort of played cultural darts and like sometimes yeah. we hit and sometimes we really missed. And I'm glad I saw it because it was Michael Gambon and Alan Alda and pff, another like lion of the, either the American or, or British theater. Um, and they were great. Did Alan Alda do a lot of stage work? Yeah, he did. He did. I guess that makes sense, because his filmography, Start After MASH, is good, but thin. Mm-hmm. It's like he's in, like, six movies, and he's great yeah. in all of them. But yeah, I think he did a lot of film stuff, uh, stage stuff. Yeah. I, I hated art. Yeah. I think it's a terrible play. Um, yeah. and it, this, yeah. this, this movie we're going to talk about would also be one that I would have second thoughts about showing to my child. Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I have yeah. questions at, at any age. For, for like, you. like if I had a 40 year old child and I was 65, I don't know that I would take my 40 year old child. I have a question for you. That's like, like, you might want to watch this on your own. Like, I said, and then if you're if you're disturbed about it, and there's anything we need to talk about, let's have that conversation. <laughs> but yeah, I, I have questions for you about like, like, <laughs> like sharing it with your friends. <laughs> and like, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I, I, you know what? I added a content warning um, to the episode that comes before this yeah. um, for that reason. I don't know that I don't know that all of our listeners will want to. Uh, will want to watch this, mm-hmm. um, and I, I wouldn't blame somebody who doesn't want to watch this. Uh, it's very disturbing. Although I, I think it is worth yeah watching. Yeah, um, me too. But uh, maybe we should maybe we should get in the recap sure. then. I mean, we're you know right into it. Um, yeah, maybe I'll start us. Go for which it. Which is this mysterious? I'll start it. You know, the movie starts amazingly, where this the, the screen is dark and tinted red, red, and you hear the sounds of dogs eating meat. Yes. And then you see a bunch of dogs eating sort of meaty bones. And then there's a sort of tracking shot 
that goes up a scaffold and you're like, what, are we in an opera house? Are we in a theater? And I don't even know that that question is ever answered, mm-hmm. but at some point you become aware that you're oddly both in the front and the back of a restaurant mm-hmm. outside because you can see the name of the restaurant, but the door opens to the kitchen, which I find very odd. Um, and then two um, trucks pull up. I'm not. We're not going to go this level of detail of the whole movie, but this this opening thing is sort of incredible. These two um, seafood trucks pull up and then a third car pulls right between them. Everything is beautifully symmetric. And Albert Spica and his goons get out. Albert is the thief of the title. Uh, this is, by the way, the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. And he is immediately starts torturing a man who owes him money, beating him, stripping him, smearing dog feces on him. And then his wife, Georgina, who is in the car looking on, clearly doesn't like to see this at some point objects to the torture and they finally go inside and they go through the kitchen and we meet the cook, the titular cook, uh, Richard or Richard, um, and he is plucking a goose and causing the air around him to look like a winter scene with goose feathers. And we're in this enormous kitchen that I don't think you can even see the ceilings. Um, It is it is like an industrial loft size kitchen um, with people doing all sorts of food preps. Bertolt Brecht designed a kitchen right <laughs> right and or or or, or caravaggio painted right. a kitchen right you know it it, it looks medieval uh-huh. it looks ancient and to add to the ancient medieval quality there is a boy soprano singing in the dish pit um and we're tracked into the kitchen um and we get a sense that there's tension between albert who is maybe the money and richard who is the genius french cook Um, The cook doesn't approve of the torture we see because once Albert's gone, he helps the poor guy who was covered in feces. And then they go, the cook and his wife, Mm -hmm. sorry, the thief and his wife go into the dining room. And I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, um, there is, we we get a lot of Spica um, and his goons sort of being oafish in the restaurant. Uh, The way that Spica doesn't shut up. Never. He he is never silent. In in terms of a performance, this is Mm -hmm. absolutely incredible for Michael Gambon, who manages to be completely awful um, and never stops talking. And it's yeah. it's really it's really quite amazing. Um, the the movie has a real play like feel, and you forget that it probably wasn't done all in one shot, but it really feels like it was. And um, sure. Spica sort of assaults your senses the entire time with just this never ending speech. Um, he, he talks so much, he, he berates the guests, he berates his men, that he misses the fact that his wife, Georgina, uh, is kind of flirting across the room with a bookish chap uh, who returns the flirtation. Um, they kind of head off to the bathroom. Um, there is a little bit of coyness as... She doesn't really want to go through with it at first and returns to her chair. He returns to his chair. Then they decide, she decides that they are going to have a tryst. They have sex in the ladies' room. Uh, They are almost caught by Spica, who comes into the bathroom and is awful. Um, And uh, this pattern repeats. The, The plot structure of the movie is that every night, 
they Spica and his men and Georgina come to the restaurant and uh, we get a view of what is on the menu that night in this sort of beautiful French menu style. Um, mm -hmm. And every night things are sort of repeated, but the tryst continues to build in intensity and the kitchen staff helps this tryst go on because everybody kind of hates Spica. Um, and so the uh, cook, Ricard, and Pup, the porter, and the dish boy, and all of the other members of the staff help Michael. Uh, we learn what his name is after uh, they, they speak to each other after they have had sex a few times. And well, and in fact, it is it is Spica who causes them to speak to one another, where he starts harassing uh, Michael and invites him to the table and is sort of harassing him. Um, although Michael uh, conducts himself very mm -hmm. admirably mm -hmm. in that situation, considering that he's being <clears throat> harassed by a very scary gangster. Yeah. Um, eventually, uh, the cat is let out of the bag uh, by a young woman who is uh, a prostitute and is part of this entourage. Um, Albert insults her and she tells on Georgina, and I will kick it back to you. So um, somehow the cook, I think, Richard, figures this out, and Georgina and Michael, he helps them kind of, he kind of spirits them out of the restaurant and then away in this truck, and we now realize that the truck has been sitting there for a week because it apparently uh, Spica stole these two food trucks but Richard refused to use the food inside. It's, a, it's an interesting echo of the movie um, uh, Blood Simple by the Coen brothers. So, so these like fish and lobsters have been sitting in this truck um, rotting for a week and there's maggots. And of course, they have to be smuggled out of there. And so it smells ghastly. Mm -hmm. But this takes them to this book depository which I think Michael has access to, and then Pup, the uh, the boy soprano uh, dish kid, brings them food, um, and so they they have this they they they've got away safely, and um, and Georgina is now free of um, the uh, monstrous thief, her husband Albert, but unfortunately Pup is intercepted uh, by Albert and the goons, and he's tortured. Um, and Albert, I guess, I guess, I don't know if Albert, uh, your note says that like, oh yeah, he, he figures out essentially Pup has some books on them and they all have a stamp of this particular, uh, address. Mm -hmm. And so Albert's able to figure this out. Georgina goes to the hospital when she hears that Pup has been hurt while she's in the hospital. Uh, the goons and Albert break in and they torture Michael to death by shoving ripped pages from his books down his own throat, uh, which is gruesome. It's depicted very quickly, fortunately. Um, and then, well, why don't you finish this out? Yeah, so uh, Georgina um, comes back to the book depository, and in a bizarre... This is heavy, spo this is heavy spoilers, y'all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. big, so big spoilers, If you everybody. think you might watch this one day, you're going to want to skip like the next minute, because yeah. you do want this to be a surprise, I think. So the first thing she does is she realizes Michael is dead, but still spends the night next to his corpse... 
in this very strange and unsettling. She kind of does this pageantry thing. You get the sense she knows he's dead. You don't think she's crazy, but she says, like, everything is going to be fine. You're going to wake up in the morning. We'll go back to the way that it was. Of course, that doesn't happen. Um, she's she's mourning, essentially. Yeah. In a... She goes to um, Ricard, the cook, and asks him to cook Michael. <laughs> and he is resistant and he won't do it. And then she tells him why she wants him to do it. Uh, she offers to pay him. He turns down the money. Um, and he assents because her plan is that she is going to feed Michael to Spica. Um, this happens because the entire staff of the restaurant sort of corners Spica. His, his goon squad has sort of depleted over the course of the, of the film. Um, and Some of them even switch sides. Yeah, yeah. You get the sense that he, he's, he's really gone too far. Um, he's 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 been bullying all of them, really, you know, and and, um, and they wrestle a gun away from him. And uh, like any like any bully, he is uh, terrified. And uh, Georgina holds a gun on him and forces him to eat uh, a bite of Michael, her lover. <laughs> and then she shoots him. Michael a la orange. Michael a la orange. Or, I don't know. What is that? What is that dish? You're, you're right. Some kind of. Yeah, it's like a duck. A glazed, a glazed duck yeah. sort of dish, right? Yeah. Um, very graphic. Um, uh, yeah, yes. we we see <laughs> yes. we see uh, Michael's uh, glazed and poached member kind of standing, not not quite erect, Indeed. but innate, um, it, right there in very prominent uh, in front yes. of speaker. Very very prominent. This is yeah. This yeah. didn't end up NC seventeen or X. This was uh, given an, an unrated rating here in the states. Um, and uh, you get the, there. There is a lot of like, yeah, fairly graphic violence and nudity. I think I think in the in the late eighties when it came out, we would have said it's a very European film. <laughs> yeah, um, and and that's it. Yeah, that is that is the end. Uh, well, um, yeah. Um, well, I mean, my I will just get into it. Uh, yeah. My first question for you: that opening shot. Um, do you think we are seeing the set? Um, do you think that we are meant to, to see the scaffolding of the light rigs and the set? Or do you think that that is supposed to somehow be part of the environment that this story is set in? I, I think we are. I, I think this is too intentionally expressionistic. Like it, it, it's really got the feeling of, um, yeah, of German expressionist art or theater. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is very performative. It is way closer to an opera than a movie, um, or a film, yeah. or a play. All of the action is writ large. Is just is it's it's all, like like most opera, it is all referent, and also just pure action at the same time. Like yeah. it is I mean both, I think with with yeah. one with one distinction is that perhaps perhaps uh you wouldn't expect such good acting from an opera. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, you, you know, and, and, and that that might be the one difference. But I I think I agree and I think that the the thing that it has in common with an opera, this the storyline is very simple. Mm-hmm. 
you don't necessarily you don't necessarily necessarily see the personal growth or whatever it's sort of like we know what this story is and the point of watching it is the sensual pleasure you know in the case of an opera that is usually the incredible performance of the opera singers voices in a beautiful space I think in this case it includes that because we have the boy soprano but I think it is the oil painting like delicious visuals of this film you know i think that that is that is what stands in for the operatic voices is the 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 visuals of the movie are just stunning the only thing the only director i can think of who comes close to this kind of visual expression is stanley kubrick and and in Mm -hmm. fact um I, the film, the, the visuals really remind me of Kubrick. Particularly, there's a lot of primary colors, a lot of red, a lot of black, a lot of blue, a lot of symmetry, um, a lot of compositions that look like oil paintings, sort of like Barry Lyndon. And in that sense, I think, you know, we talked about how with, say, the movie Boyhood, um, time replaces plot. I think in this movie, visual beauty replaces plot. I mean, there is a plot, but it's not a particularly complex, surprising, interesting plot. Yeah, this is another one where archetype and and beauty stand in for our, yeah, traditional storytelling stuff. And and I think that's the point. Um, This is, it's it's almost all allegory um, or parable. Um, it's, It's like, it's like Hieronymus Bosch and the guy who directed Drive got together and and made a made a, a movie. I can't pronounce that guy's name. Nicholas Nic- Winding Nicholas Winding Refn or something. Ar- Refn, yeah, yeah, something like that. <laughs> Nicholas Winding Refn. Yeah, I, um, I kept thinking yeah, to myself yeah, yeah. that no, that's a that's a very good reference, right? Yeah. As if, Although, yeah, because yeah, like in the in the same way that if um, without the fall you don't have pavement. Without this movie, you both don't have Nicholas Winding Refn, and you also don't have Wes Anderson. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah. Interesting. What I would oh. say, though, is without Barry Lyndon and mm. without The Shining, you don't have this movie. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. <laughs> totally. Yeah, it's... Um, in fact, yeah, this I... movie is like merging Barry Lyndon in The Shining into one movie and then like adding Reservoir Dogs, which actually yeah. came out a little bit later. But, um, and also including Tim the Roth. Tim, like, <laughs> Tim Roth, right. No, this was the era of Tim Roth, and it's like, uh-huh. if you see Tim Roth, you know that the movie is going to be well made, and you know that you might feel nauseated at some point <laughs> in the course of watching the film from this particular era. Uh, bad, yeah, that's always bad how things I feel always about... happen when Tim Roth. Yeah, appears you're right. Yeah, in exactly. <laughs> Particularly in this era, yeah. like ears get cut off, people lose their fingers, <laughs> children get their belly buttons cut out. Uh, terrible things happen when Tim, Tim Roth appears around. in a movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, swing. Rosencrantz and Gildenstern both die. die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terribly unfairly. Um, yeah. yeah, I, I, I really. Um, I mean, that opening track, uh, that opening shot. I was like, uh, oh my god, we're in a Wes Anderson movie. And then, and yeah. and then, I mean, so many moments like that. I mean, the. Um, the the um, the saddest West the saddest and darkest <laughs> like well I mean what's interesting yeah. is that it makes some of those Wes Anderson throwaway moments in like Rushmore that you you get yeah. the joke you're like 
oh, like yeah, those those like he's sort of aping this movie. He's with uh, with those moments with a sort of o- like wildly over the top, um, very stylized uh, everything. You know, visuals, cinematography, acting. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's very funny. I'd never heard of this movie. Uh, did you know that there's a Bob's Burgers uh, episode called uh, <laughs> The Cook, The Steve, His Gale, and Her Lover? No, I don't actually. I've never seen Bob's Burgers, but that sounds amazing. I, I, just the fact that, that just the fact that like a comedy show would like pastiche this film <laughs> is incredible. And it's um. It, they they did. I was wondering. I was like, is it going to be like a wholesale kind of like ripoff? And it's it isn't. But there is like vomit and a rib roast that kind of goes like awry. And yeah. it's um it it, yeah. it does homage in like a in like a nice way. Yeah, yeah. Um, who do you um? Who's the protagonist of this film? <laughs> when I saw this question on there, I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> um, you know, I was, I was intrigued by the beginning because the, the person they are shoving the feces in that person's mouth looks so much like Michael. Mm. It, it is a very, very visual yeah. um, sort of call out. And I was wondering, is this is this a cyclical movie? Like, has yeah. Georgina done this before? We we kind of know that that guy is getting beaten up because he, he stole from Spica. Um, it's a little hard to understand, but I, I that's the sense that I got. Um, I don't think Georgina is the protagonist. She's kind of the one that you would imagine, but like. She is responsible for Michael's death, I would say. Um, I mean, they are they are equally culpable, but yeah, you know, um, I don't. Well, think, I mean, I did. Okay, continue, yeah, I sorry. don't think she's the protagonist. Um, maybe it's Ricard. Maybe it's the chef. <laughs> but I mean, he he's, kind of he's the most the sympathetic forward. He's the kindest. He's the kindest character. The first thing we see him do is clean the dog shit off the poor man. Mm -hmm. Um, And he always stands up to Albert Spica, despite Spica's power over him. Um, He always helps whoever needs it. You know, he, 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 he is innately kind, even though he is, you know, the master of his domain, the chef in the kitchen. Um... You know, the argument for Georgina, I think, is the most classical argument, um, which is that she is kind of like a slave when the story starts. She has this experience of pleasure, which we do understand, I think, is an escape for her, a needed escape. Is my, Michael's not a catch by any, but, but uh, do you know what I mean? But at the same time, he is interested in her. He's kind. He's bold. They have their affair. And that is a form of liberation, I think, for Georgina. That brings about his death. And his death brings about the end of her paralysis. And she is then willing to take action against, mm-hmm. you know, her tormentor. 
Albert. So in that structural sense, I think she is the protagonist. Um, but I don't feel like we're in her point of view ever. I think we're watching. We're, we're, yeah. and, and I think, you know, this gets back to, the, I think, the very first shot. And so also, not only do we see that tracking shot, we also see the two sort of like servers pull the curtains yeah. back as though the filmmaker is saying, you are watching a play. Yeah. Yeah. And you notice the set of the street, the street out in front, very obviously is this our boards yeah. like it it looks like a theater out out front and so i i and i you have this sense and even the camera angles the tracking it always feel it always feels like you're maybe you know there are tracking shots of a kind you wouldn't see when you're watching a play but it's as though you're sitting in the theater tracking your eyes across the stage <laughs> that's been laid in front of you um, and even the way the scenes change when you go from the kitchen to the dining room or the dining room to the bathrooms, it's almost like a scene change, you know, like curtain down, curtain yeah. up. We're in a different place, you know, because what you do is you sort of go into the wall, everything gets dark and then you emerge in this space that looks totally different, you know, curtain down, curtain comes back up, suddenly we're in a different place. And it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I wanted to ask that question. I don't know what the answer is. I don't know if this story has a protagonist. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's a very good story, even. <laughs> I, I mean, you know, do you, well, do you think this is a good story? No, and I don't mean yeah. that's different than is it a good film? Right. You know, I, I, no, it's, it's not questions. a good story, but it's not trying to be like it's um, right. like with anything like with any kind of expressionism, like. This is, it's the interplay of, of what things, what, what everything in here represents. And mm. it, it is, um, it is so like weighted with, uh, with symbolism. Um, and the, the closest, as, as you were talking, I was kind of like, okay, well, what are, what are the ideas here that are sort of held up as like good things or safe spaces and it's kind of books <laughs> like there's a real there's a real interplay um attention mm -hmm. between speaking which is which is pretty much speakers i mean it's like it's in his freaking name <laughs> it's pretty much yeah. his territory where all he does is speak and bloviate and just fill the world here with really violent and oafish rhetoric and that is set against Michael, who is quiet and thoughtful and bookish. So we have a classic, like, speaking, reading, um, you know, thing. Um, right. Books right. always stand in for knowledge. Okay. Once we are talking about knowledge and eating things, we are in, you know, Garden of Eden territory. We're in the fall. Once we're talking about the Garden of Eden, we're talking about sex. We're talking about being expelled. Um, and pretty quickly, this, this, this movie starts to take on like a pretty heavy mm. allegorical weight. <clears throat> Heaven and hell. Yeah. Or oh, yeah. I mean, Eden in the there world. is a yeah. swinging pig's head that, that obscures our main characters' heads mm. when they're in like the most hellish environment um, on their way to a place of peace, which might be Inferno, might be Purgatorio. Um, it's the late 80s in England. Like, it's not a great time. 
when this movie yeah. is being made um, for the filmmaker yeah. and its society. Um, yeah, I mean, I think this is a classic ideas. I mean, it, it's so Brechtian. Like, mm. like mm. the actors know that we know that the actors know that they're acting. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, do you, what do you think about the performances then? Like, I mean, normally I would say a self-conscious performance is a bad performance, mm. right? Well, I mean, it, I mean, that's the cool thing about like Brechtian acting is that it is, you, you don't go there for the realistic acting performances. You go there for the kind of operatic bigness of the human experience. Um, and uh, that's what is supposed to be happening. I find all of these performances stilted in a very interesting way. <laughs> mm. Like they're all mm. doing their own, the thing they're supposed to be doing and doing it very, very well. Um, mm. And again, it makes me think of Drive, um, that the acting notes that that uh, the director gives, gives Ryan Gosling in that movie is probably like, hey man, next scene, I want you to do nothing. You know, I, I, I see that. Um, what do you think about the moment when Helen Mirren's character Georgina talks about being, you know, sort of sexually molested mm -hmm. by Albert, her husband? Um, because that might be an exception. Yeah. That's a, it's much quieter mm -hmm. than the rest of the performances. And that happens when they're in the book repository, um, I yeah. believe. I, have to, I think it's in the book repository. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. The, the other option would be the, uh, <laughs> the, when they're in, they're in sort of a cage that's full of hanging Bread. vegetables and fruits. And oh, yeah. they, it's a very intimate moment, too. But I think it's in the book yeah. repository. Yeah, that, that's sort of the beating heart of the movie because it's the only time they're safe. And they're safe for like mm. such a small amount of time. And she can kind of unbuckle her armor. Um, and that's another piece, I think, of the conceit here. That like she moves mm. to a more realistic acting style in this moment where she can. Um, mm. And everything else, like it really is, I mean, it's like kabuki theater. Uh, it's mm. it is very stylized except for that moment, and even though I don't find the performances realistic, I find them impressive. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, Gambon is hard. I, I, it's 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 hard. He's his performance is magnetic, but it's also I'm like I'm glad this is over. I don't want I don't want to see any more of this. Mm -hmm. He's so terrible. He's awful. Um, and and to a point where it's sort of like again I don't know if it's a very good story because there's nothing complicated about his character, yep. and in fact the most interesting you know the moment when he is terrified, that is an interesting moment because I think it it implicates the viewer in a kind of revenge fantasy, which I think is interesting because what is a bully doing but taking revenge on the people who have hurt him. Um, I mean, I think this is one of the great themes of Game of Thrones and why I really liked the ending of Game of Thrones and most people didn't, you know, I was like, yeah, we're seeing a monster yeah. being created out of somebody who's not a monster. That's and and that process. It's not like people are born evil. Right. Um, 
you know, and so, but that question isn't really addressed, you know? I think that if you wanted to do an interesting story about Albert Spica the gangster, you, you would maybe allude to some of his childhood or whatever happened to him mm-hmm. that made him decide that he needs to be the terror mm-hmm. in other people's lives. Yeah. Two questions about food. Yeah. Um, would you want to eat at this restaurant? No. <laughs> <laughs> Say more about that. I, I mean, it's... It's not a it's not a restaurant. It's a it's a place of it's a place of ideas. And I mean, what you said about the different sets is so true. Um, mm. The different sets don't have any connection to each other. Mm. Each space feels wildly different. Um, yeah. The characters' costumes change color depending yeah. on which set they are in in the mo- in the particular moment. Um, I mean, this is a it's a lurid fantasy. It is a, it's a, it's, it's a, it's Lynchian. Um, it mm. is, and, and because of that. Not quite, but, but I know what you yeah, mean. Right, yeah, yeah, we're really. It's on the Lynch spectrum. Exactly, yeah. Um, Somewhere between Kubrick and Lynch. No, I would be totally, like, weirded out to eat in this restaurant. Um, you yeah. know, you hear. Even if Spica, even if Albert Spica weren't there hmm. harassing everybody, like in that situation, this restaurant doesn't. That would that it, would certainly it doesn't that exist. That would certainly be better, <laughs> right? Right. I, it, this restaurant doesn't exist with Albert Spica. The entire thing is an ecosystem. Yeah. yeah, it it exists it's, only it's in like, this space. It's like his chamber of hell. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, although, okay, so but with uh, so. Well, I just thought of something too, though, which is that Michael quite likes it there. Yeah. Um, the you know you talked about what do the various characters have in common. I think there is a bond between Michael the lover, Richard the cook, and Georgina. One thing that is explicit is they all enjoy the food mm-hmm. and they have a similar palate. And you know Richard even says to Albert, "I always, it's always a pleasure to serve your wife." Yeah. Which is in Albert, you know, I think Albert plays this very well. The one thing, I mean, the characterization of Albert is excellent because he is both proud of his wife and degrades her and fiercely jealous. And so when Richard the cook uh, compliments his wife, he is both pleased by the competent compliment and jealous of her palate and then you know pours a bunch of like port wine and other stuff in one of her dishes to sort of ruin it and to kind of mock her palate you know um but um i I do think i I do think that is kind of interesting i'm curious what do you think this movie i mean is this a foodie film does it have something to say about food yes um but the food only stands in for appetite and as you were just pointing out, how the different uh, classes of the characters uh, interact with it. Um, Spica mm. doesn't understand the food, um, and Georgina and Michael and, and Richard do. Um, and we are meant to draw some kind of classist uh, argument mm. about that. Mm. Um, mm. And uh, I don't think it's about, just like I don't think anything any of the stuff in this movie is not about the stuff uh it is all about power um you know it's the Hmm. it makes me think of the david mammoth line uh everything is about sex except sex which is about power Mm. and this movie really trades in that um Hmm. you know the the sex stuff is about power 
the the food stuff is about sex, <laughs> um, and it it's yeah. I don't I don't think it is. I'm trying to think of an example where a sim like something so central to a work is not about itself that it's mm. about whatever the director is trying whatever point the director is trying to get across and um and you know i didn't this this was an interesting watching experience i'm not gonna say that i like loved this <laughs> i am glad i saw it and i thought about it I've been thinking about it pretty consistently since I watched it because it's strange and over the top and very different. Um, and it really pushes on the limits of film. Uh, and I really value it for that. And the performances are incredible and the cinematography is wild. And um, it's really a worthwhile watch. I don't know if I enjoyed myself. <laughs> Yeah. Um, but I don't think it's about food. I think the food is provides a helpful. You couldn't do it without the food. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing I'm thinking about a lot, too, in this movie is there are a lot of human bodily functions in fluids mm -hmm. on display. And that's also uh, Albert's favorite topic. Just yeah. about everything he is talking about is, has something to do with like sex or, you know, defecation or sweat or what smells like what or all of these other fertility. And one of the things I noticed, I mean, the way that uh, Michael seduces or flirts with Georgina is in the way that he is eating. And at one point he sort of looks at her and then takes a very lusty bite of whatever he's eating and stares right at her as if to say you know i wish to possess you in the same way and you know it's not it's not um it's not mean it's not seductive it, it is um it is to suggest that she is just as delicious as as whatever it is that he's eating although we don't even know what he's eating um and um but i also think about you know they end up having a lot of sex in the kitchen like in the same place that like the bread is being stored and the vegetables and you know like sex can be kind of gross you know like i don't want people having sex in the kitchen <laughs> where uh, my food is being prepared i don't want that to happen not unless they're going to do a really good job cleaning it up and and you know the first thing we see is like dog feces and we see the fish rotting and all of this other stuff it does also seem to be saying something that actually there's a moment of there's a moment of similarity. There's a moment of resonance with Babette's feast. Like, you know, there's sometimes movies where you're watching a movie and you're like, oh, we're in this other movie for a second. And I feel like in Babette's feast, when you see the cow's head and the dead quails, it's like we're suddenly in the cook, the thief, his <laughs> wife and her lover for like just a minute. Yeah. It's like. You know what I mean? And that's the one thing that they have in common, which is an awareness. And I think this is also very French, is that an awareness that cooking, particularly if you're using meats, is earthy, mm -hmm. animalistic, even dirty. Yeah. 
even there's an element of it that can feel a little bit profane, even though you're creating something that's sort of beautiful. Right. And like one of like the soup cook is constantly shirtless. Yes. Like I'm, <laughs> I'm sure there's some oil painting that's based on, right? Like some 16th century oh, painting, sure. like a bald guy stirring a cauldron or something like that. But it's, it's like, why doesn't he put a shirt on? I don't want his chest hairs to fall into the soup. You know, like he might drip some sweat and, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit squeamish, but I did just, it, 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 it felt like we were being constantly asked to imagine what things tasted and smelled like, and including delicious things, but also terribly um, disgusting things as well, like yeah. vomit or the cooked Michael. And what's the last thing that Albert does before he is killed is vomits, you yeah. know, um, before he takes a bite of... Um, before he takes a bite of Michael and then is killed. Um, yeah, this this film never lets you... The difference, I'd say, between this and Babette's Feast is, like, Babette's Feast, we see the animals dying or dead, but this mm. movie reminds us that food turns into shit and that it also, mm. if unused, turn it that it rots and that it becomes right. unusable. Um, and it's all... Yeah, again, like it's we're all we're in we're in ideas world again, but Peter Greenaway is sticking to the no ideas but in things. Like he is right. focused entirely on the things here. And what's Albert? He's a thief. What's Ricard? He's a cook. <laughs> what right. is this guy? Right. He has to eat shit. Like what yeah. is Georgina? Yep. The wife, <laughs> right. um, and the the adulterer, um, and yeah. there are books. Uh, Michael is killed by having to eat the pages of his favorite book. <laughs> like it's all, it's all things um, that are that then that then profess the ideas of the film, um, and I think that's why that opening tracking shot. We see scaffolds. What what are scaffolds do? We scaffolds hold things up. They exist in the real world, but we also use scaffolding as a as a way of like talking about rhetoric. That like you build your argument with scaffolding. Um, right. Like I think Peter Greenway like like he's like yep I know exactly what I'm not going to tell a story I'm going to tell an idea. Um, is is do you think there is actually an argument or is it just an assemblage of rich latent rich symbolism sort of all laid out in front of you in a gloriously beautiful and occasionally profane way i think he is like working in the kind of like grand like judeo-christian tradition um this is a very big idea film and that we're talking about all the big stuff. We're talking about sin. We're talking about knowledge. We're talking about leaving the garden. We're talking about death. We're talking about hell. We're talking about heaven. Um, we can stay there. Uh, we can do a social reading and again be like, okay, late, you know, late 1980s, there are big co class conflicts going on in England at the time. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, we could do that, um, or it just could be like this wild, strange romp through this uh, this this weird funhouse. And I kind of like well, that it could be all those things. 
but okay, so I mean, I agree that we're certainly talking about about all those things. But then, I guess my question is: is there is is there is is does he say anything about those things? Like, okay, if we're <clears throat> we're talking about Sartre, right? Hell is other people. That's, that's, we're not just talking about hell. We're, or if we're Star Wars, yeah. there is good in everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody is redeemable. Mm-hmm. That is the. It's about good and evil, but there is a message, yeah. which is that everybody is redeemable, and love, in fact, has the power to redeem anybody mm-hmm. at any point in their life. That's the message of Star Wars. And whether it's the love of friendship that can turn an irascible, you know, smuggler rogue uh, into a loyal companion or whether it's the love of a father for a son which causes him to finally you know overthrow uh the you know the master who's held him in thrall for all these years um is there a statement like that (laughs) that you could ascertain from this film that doesn't have to be i'm just curious i'm curious if he's saying anything or if he's just painting Hmm. not to say that you can't say something with your painting Um, I'm kind of reminded of, I can't remember who this quote is, is attributed to, but, um, a poem is about something in the same way that a cat is about the house. And (laughs) I think that, I mean, if you, if, if you leaned on me, I would say that this movie wants to be about the distinction between speechifying and mm. not and thinking you know mm. where speaker stands for sort of bloviation and specious arguments and resentment and bullying and books and knowledge sex stands in for knowledge as well um, is better, but not. It's not a perfect dichotomy. Like, mm. like nothing is really good here. Um, but knowledge and connection is better than bloviation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, again, the cook is the probably the most unmistakably good character. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he sees a kindred spirit in Georgina and Michael and helps them. Uh, not just because they're pitiful, but also, I think, because he recognizes. It's interesting that you said that that's classist. I have a whole, I have a whole thought around, sort of related about the relationship of taste mm. and class. As somebody who often has, for much of my life, has not had more than a couple dollars to rub together, but has always prided myself perhaps in having better taste than many people who are quite a bit wealthier than me. Mm-hmm. And, but then sort of wondering if like, is that my own version of class that I'm doing? Mm. Um, you know, am I, am I just kind of, you know, and lots of people do this, right? This is basically the definition of hipster. Yeah. Um, it, 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 you know, somebody whose self-worth comes from their taste as opposed to their material um, and, and even sense of class. Um, and I'm calling myself out for that um but um i could go to trivia now um do you have any other questions okay yeah yeah. i have i have an important one for you okay Uh, can you locate the middleness of this movie for me when are we in does that mean when we're in the middle no the upper middle brownness of this oh (laughs) i i I mean this this film Uh strikes me as almost 
Oh, I, it's hard. It's hard for me to say, but it, it really does seem to sit in the the sort of like upper tranches of like of like the works we consider. Like you've really got to come to this movie with your like critical faculties in place, and yeah. um, and that's the kind of thing where it's like, okay, was this a widely popular film? I know it it did fairly well. It won a lot of awards. Um, but I'm wondering, like, what about this strikes you as, you know, as as middlebrow? Good question. Okay. Well, so my cop out answer. I have two cop out answers. Uh-huh. Cop out answer number one. Cop out answer number one is that upper middlebrow sounds like a shelf, a place on a shelf, but it's really more about our position, our positionality vis-a-vis art. Which is and sort of the belief that anything that is sort of perceived as pulpy or pleasurable should be discussed in a, a, with the same rigor as something that is elevated, but that also the discussion of that which is elevated should be just as pleasurable as the discussion of that which is pulpy. So that thing sort of cuts both ways. So, but that's a cop out. Mm-hmm. Um, that's the justification for talking about it for a podcast. Um, the more serious answer is, well, you know what, I'll tell you, so I can, if I was given the chance to design the afterlife, uh-huh. um, the, it, paradise would be something kind of like the McDowell colony, but near the ocean. I would not have a hell. Um, and the, But then for people who are sort of in, I would have a kind of pleasant version of purgatory. Uh, which also would be for people who kind of burned out on paradise because i think you can burn out on anything and my model for the sort of happy purgatory a sort of bardo like space um is clemens library the undergraduate library at the university of virginia which is a very warm comforting space with like somnambulant loud radiators and a rule where you, you're not really supposed to talk on many of the floors and in the 1990s when I was there there were like 50 TV little like it has a very good media library so there were 50 little like TVs with VCRs and DVD players where you could go check out a movie from the reserve and watch it on this very comfortable couch and I spent many a happy hour as an undergraduate with like a plastic set of headphones plugged into a headphone amp watching you know some and often it would be like the big 12 inch pre-dvd oh, yeah yeah like i remember those <laughs> the, the yeah, huge yeah. laser yeah, so discs you get one of those <laughs> yeah like it's as big as a vinyl record yep. and you would take it and stick it in and then halfway through you had to get it you had to open it up and flip it over because yep. they can only have about 40 minutes and so sometime when i was 18 or 19 i watched this movie i was wondering um, if you'd seen it before and yes, yes, I have. And, um, you know, I, I feel like every time I was in there, somebody was watching um, The Godfather. Every time. <laughs> Someone would always be watching The Godfather. I remember. And I do remember watching this movie and being like, man, there's a lot of nudity in here. And I'm like in this room with a lot of people. Um, you know, it is a little bit pulpy. Um, the sex is very, very, very explicit. Oh, yeah. Um, and what's interesting, I don't. Watching it this time, Helen Mirren is beautiful, and yet, in watching it this time, it was very clear and surprising to me how clearly she is a middle-aged woman. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't remember that. 
from the first viewing. I think because when I was 18 or 19, I probably had never seen so much nudity in my life, uh. <laughs> you know, and that in and of and 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 that in and of itself was was kind of shocking and surprising and it made an impression on me, I think at the time. And in a way it was a sort of like welcome to adulthood. You're an adult now. You can check out a movie at your undergraduate library and watch naked people for hours. <laughs> you know? <laughs> You know, uh, which feels very naive. And, you know, it's not pornographic, you know, and, and it, it's not even I don't find the sex to be even particularly pleasurable to watch. I don't no. find it to be particularly uh -huh. erotic. Um, yeah, I don't think it's it feels I, I it feels realistic, but it feels, it feels fleshy. desperate. Yeah, yeah, desperate yeah. and fleshy, and 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 you know you might be happy that these two people found each other, maybe although it it comes to a tragic end. So I guess my best answer to that question is that it, you know it probably isn't really upper middle brow based on your definition, but if it were to be, it is it is certainly a very lurid. Yeah film and lurid has a kind of pulpy quality yeah so perhaps perhaps that um but again my cop-out answer is that upper middle brow is more what we do rather than being sort of a shelf so my friends have this podcast called nerdette it's oh, now just hosted yeah. by greta and they and they always used to say uh, nerdette could be a noun, but we like to use it as a verb, mm -hmm. and that anybody can be a nerd or nerdette about anything. And I think, in the same way, you and I have a particular way about considering and thinking about works of culture. That is upper middle brow. Awesome. The way that, that we answer. think and talk about it, and we yeah. can apply it to anything we want. Yeah, that's a great answer. I'm satisfied. Upper upper <laughs> well, middle brow. It is. Uh, shall we? Shall we do some? Shall we do some uh, uh, trivia? Let's do it. Let's go there. Okay. Okay. I think you went first last time. Okay. That, that, yes, that is right. correct. So you may have looked this up, um, and I wouldn't. I wouldn't blame you. But Helen Mirren and Michael Gambon share at least one other acting credit together that I'm aware of. There might be others. They were both in a 19 late 1970s production of the Royal Shakespeare Company. I'm not sure which theater, but it was, you know, the Royal Shakespeare Company, um, in which they also played major characters who are in a contentious relationship. Mm. Um, was the play Antony and Cleopatra, A, Antony and Cleopatra, in which they were the titular characters, B, The Taming of the Shrew, in which Gambon plays Petruchio and Mirren plays Katerina, C, The Merchant of Venice, in which Gambon plays Shylock and Mirren plays Portia. Or D, The Royal Shakespeare Theater's production of The Moat in God's Eye, in which Gambon <laughs> plays Horace Hussein Burry and Mirren plays Lady Sandra Bright Fowler. Ooh. Oh, this is tough because they, I mean, they, they were basically company members at the RSC for, for a long time. So they may have had other credits together, uh, too. Um, Okay. Ting. If it turns out you pick one that that I was mistaken about, but it's true, I'll give you retro. <laughs> I'll give you a retro ding. Credit. Um, uh, Merchant yeah. of Venice, um, uh, Taming of the Shrew, or Antony and Cleopatra. I'm gonna go with Antony and Cleopatra. You got it. Yes. <laughs> my okay. My reasoning on this one. Um, they are very serious actors. Like, they've done mm -hmm. comedies, and I'm sure that they have played those roles. Um, but that is, and for that particular time in their career, 
they would have been perfectly suited to be that. You know, like they they would be getting like, all right, guys, this season you guys get Antony and Cleopatra, and next season you get Hamlet and Ophelia. <laughs> like, right, you know. right. I could see Shylock and Portia. Yeah. I think particularly since Mirren was about the right age, you know, in the late nineteen seventies, and Gambon could definitely could be off. Shylock. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's um, yeah. Um, oh my god! But uh, a correct answer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you thought your way into it yeah. too. Um, yeah. All right. I thought you would like well, that. Well, I one. also have a question about uh, the actors and the other work that they've done. I went the other okay. direction. Um, Michael, played by Alan Howard, the lover, um, has a credit in the Lord of the Rings films. Was he A. Theoden, uh, the king of Rohan? Was he the voice of the ring itself? Or C, did he play Radagast the Brown? Was, did Radagast the Brown make an appearance he did, in the movie? He did. He shows up with uh, quite a bit yeah. of bird poop in his beard. Um, uh, it is, oh, uh, I'm recalling it now. It's, yeah. it's like one of those moments where you're like, yeah, yeah, Peter Jackson, you got that right. That is 100% what Radagast is like. Radagast the Brown probably in like D and D would be a druid and not a wizard. Yeah. But um, um, the guy who played Theoden might have actually been in this movie as well, but it's not him. Uh, so <laughs> I believe Alan Howard was the voice of the Ring. Correct. Yes, uh, he played the voice of the Ring. Um, I He's don't remember the, the ring having a voice. Is, is, is that the voice is like, Frodo? Or is I it be, sort of... I believe so. Is it that, or um, is it sort of like, there were eight rings forged? But no, that's... That's uh, that's, um, that's that's a female voice. Uh, it's um, yeah, Kate Blanchett. No, it, it's, uh, yeah, it's Kate Blanchett, you know. Um, weird. I didn't really realize that the ring had a voice. Um, yeah. It was a fun little deep dive. Uh, it was fun. Yeah. I, I was trying to... I really wanted to see what other films Pup the Boy had been in. Um, he doesn't yeah. have many other credits. <laughs> it's weird because is he? He also seems like he might be like rather um, anti-melanonic. Too, yes, you know, yeah. is it, um, he seems like he might be. I, or is it? Are we still allowed to call people albinos? Is that word like kind hmm, of? I'm not sure. Merged into listeners. Uh, let um, us know. Can't cancel yeah. cancel um, us if we're wrong. Cancel us if we're wrong. Um, he might be a quote unquote albino. Um, yeah, he because he's stunning. His presence is stunning. I wonder if he had a career as a boy soprano. I mean, he has a tremendous voice too. I also think that was one of the points I kind of wanted to make too, which is like in addition to the curtains opening, the scaffolding. To me, another one of the clues of like you're watching a thing. It's like an opera. It's him singing, yeah. you know. <laughs> and then, of course, the other great clue is that amazing Rembrandt-looking painting that is behind them, yeah. you know, with all all these men, basically depicting exactly what yeah, it's, the thief. It's uh, I believe it's Spica called. Is doing. I believe that painting's called the Burgermeisters, um, oh. and, and and yeah, same same ideas like power, food. <laughs> Burgermeisters would be a word meaning something like the merchants, um, I think, in Dutch, right? Like a burger is yeah. that's the same root as bourgeoisie, so sort of like the upper middle class 
merchants or something like that. But yeah, um, and that is, that is how Spica fancies himself. And you know, it, it he he does have this kind of bizarre, not bizarre. It's very British, but he has a he has a class yearning. Yes, he, he does to be, for sure. Um, yeah, he wants to be upper class, but doesn't know but doesn't know how to be. Yeah. Um, how uh, did this film meet your expectations? Whoa, what a question. <laughs> this, this is about, I've replaced, uh, are you going to watch this again? Um, but you could also answer that. I think did you already said that you would not watch it again. I, I, no, I mean, I could see watching it again as like, uh, yeah. like hey, do you want to watch something wild? <laughs> um, yeah. And... Um, do you want to traumatize your <laughs> Um This movie torpedoed my expectations. Like, <laughs> Are you trying to break up with somebody? Perhaps you should <laughs> perhaps screen this film. Hey, babe. <laughs> you want to cuddle and watch uh, The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover? It's like a. I want our I want our relationship to be like uh, uh, Spica and Georgina. Yeah, it's a sensual foreign romp. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, it's um, it, no like this th- like one of the things I am valuing about this experience was how my expectations were wildly inverted. <laughs> like I really thought this was going to be kind of a like um, I thought we were going to be in either like a comedy or tragedy of manners. Um, like I was like, oh yeah, we're gonna be in like the food world of like Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, <laughs> Babette's Feast in England. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Or like John Le Carré, with but a, in a with, in a restaurant with an affair. Yeah, with an affair. I know. Yeah, I was yeah, really like John Le Carré. In a I was like yeah. settling in. I was like, ooh, like this had an NC seventeen rating. Like maybe things are gonna be kind of hot. <laughs> and like, and I, like thirty yeah. minutes in, I was like, okay. I am back in like the Lower East Side and I am going to Ontological Hysterical or the Worcester Group. Like I am yeah. back in performance art world. And yeah, and that's yeah, a part of yeah. my world that I love. And but it wasn't um my expectations were very different. I'm very happy that I saw it. Um and I'm not gonna be able to forget it. Um, I will just say that this was not as good as I remember mm-hmm. it. I think I actually enjoyed it more. And I think part of the reason I enjoyed it more is that I was on the cusp of adulthood. And I think there was something thrilling about being like, I'm a grown up now and I can watch this weird movie. And I had never seen anything like it. Um, it also, but I just, I don't think it's a good story. I think all the virtuals, all the virtues are sensual. Mm-hmm. And then you think about somebody like um, Stanley Kubrick or like the Coen brothers um, who also do this sort of symmetry or even like the very best of Wes Anderson, um, although very different filmmaker, but especially Stanley Kubrick. Kubrick's visuals is particularly Barry Lyndon and The Shining are every bit as stunning Mm -hmm. as this film. And he has something interesting to say. Um, but, of course, he's a genius. So um, this is not genius. It's still a good, well-made, stunning film. It's a production, but it's not quite as good as I remembered it. And I remembered it being more foody than this. Um, it actually made me, like, not want to eat. Oh, yeah. Um, um, so so there we are. Um, listener, uh, next time, I believe we are going to see a film uh, that's going to make you want to eat, and that is uh, Tampopo. 
uh, by Juzo Itami, a Japanese production, I think also from around this time, like late 80s or early 1990s. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Upper Middle Brow is a small point production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the boy sopranos and the shirtless soup cooks. Music is by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by me, Chris Bag. You can learn more about us at uppermiddlebrow.com. You can also fill out our listener survey and please, please, please do it. And don't just think that like because you're friends with us, you don't need to do it. Uh, we really need some survey results, so please fill it out, and we'll enter you in a drawing to win a story Bluetooth speaker, unless you don't want us to. You don't have to take our, our Bluetooth, but please fill out the survey. We really need the information. Um, to do that, you can go to uppermiddlebrow.com for a link to the survey, or check the show notes. Uh, we'll put the link in there, too. As a reminder, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing projects. You can see some of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com. Check them out. Get in touch if you want to talk about how we can help you with your project, big or small. Cool. I'm going to go take my shirt off and cook some soup. That sounds great. I'm going and sing. to... Wash yeah, me! <laughs> wash me! Um, Wash me. I'm going to go eat a book. <laughs> oh, paper cuts. Nasty way to go. Makes me want to go by watch paper the cut. YouTube video, Werner Herzog Eats His Shoe. Oh, yeah, it's a great video. Great. It's yeah. amazing. Um, yeah, yeah, in uh, Cooks It in Duck Fat. That's right. <laughs> That's right. I forgot yeah. that. He also says, I'm not, uh, let me see if I can get my Werner. Um, I am not going to eat the soul. When you eat a chicken with your hands, you don't eat the bones. I feel like the same thing is justified in this case. I will eat the leather parts and the laces, but I will not eat the soul. <laughs> this is so German. <laughs> I love yeah, it. He's awesome. I love that guy. Yeah. Love that dude. He was on Fresh Air recently. Um, this was fun. Short and sweet.